All right, everybody, don't drop that fast forward button. The sponsorship roll call is about to begin. Energy Consulting Limited provides complete project management and general contracting services to a variety of private sector clients on both commercial and residential construction projects. They act as the owner's representatives through the planning, design, budgeting, scheduling, construction, and occupancy processes. Clients appreciate their open, honest, and flexible approach to achieving their project goals. Although they're located in Surrey, BC, Energy works on projects all over the province, including the growing cities of the north and the beautiful coastal towns of Vancouver Island. They're always excited to explore new places and develop relationships with professionals wherever their clients' interests may be. Abacus North is a firm that specializes in mortgage banking solutions for complex projects. In addition to providing financing solutions in a traditional mortgage broker capacity, Abacus North provides direct loans that range from $2 million to $25 million. On a syndicated basis, they provide mortgage banking solutions up to $300 million. In most cases, their in-house capital solutions can bridge financing gaps that traditional lenders are unable to service. They specialize in providing land acquisition loans, construction financing for large-scale developments, income-producing properties, and single-purpose facilities. With a portfolio that includes high-rise, mid-rise, and low-rise condominiums, townhouse developments, shopping centers, agricultural properties, industrial developments, and medical marijuana facilities, Abacus North is at the forefront of creative mortgage banking solutions with a focus on fostering long-term relationships. They are a multifaceted organization that services domestic and international clients with their mortgage banking needs. Complex financing solutions require analytical thinking well beyond a typical mortgage broker relationship. As a result, they focus on providing engineered solutions for their client. Their key differentiation strategy is that they assist clients in actively managing the capital stack in order to minimize borrowing costs while maximizing flexibility. Abacus North focuses on national and global opportunities. Ascentia CPA has a team of new-gen chartered professional accountants that are dedicated to advancing companies using expertise combined with emerging technologies. The team at Ascentia will implement the latest accounting technologies, allowing you to not only run a business, but to run a smart business that will excel in your industry. Their focus is to provide growth-centric, value-added, and timely accounting services for businesses, as well as individuals across Canada. Unlike standard accounting firms, by embracing cloud-based software, the team at Ascentia will provide you with real-time accounting information on a secure platform that is accessible anywhere at any time, allowing you to make better informed decisions and gain more controlled overview of your financial data. The reliability and expertise you will experience with the professionals at Ascentia will assist you in the preparation of corporate and personal tax returns, financial statements, bookkeeping, government filings, tax and estate planning, as well as business advisory services. For more information on the advantages of online accounting and to book a complimentary meeting online, be sure to visit ascentiacpa.ca. We are I. everybody we're sitting down with Don attack this morning and uh, we're just going to kind of jump into a conversation we're having right now um, just you know like off air about how it's 
almost trendy to be traumatized now. And, you know, like we were talking about how like people almost want to make up trauma in their life to be able to be a participant in the conversation or feeling like that everybody needs to be traumatized these days. And, you know, again, just be able to fit into this, this culture and kind of where that's steering us. So, um, Donna, why don't you kind of pick up, you know, where we left off and, you know, kind of throw in your two cents, like, like what, how, what do you feel like is a movement that's happening, you know, like these days when it comes to trauma culture? Yeah, you know, as I was saying in our sort of off-air conversation, it's almost like trauma is the new black. Everybody, and and I want to be really careful here because I don't want to um, invalidate or uh, say, you know, people don't have trauma because I know we do. It's it's just swung so far the, the other way because finally there's a platform to talk about it. People are opening up and saying, yes, this happened to me. And we have that whole Me Too movement and, and all these things. But what I find is we've become so uh, hooked into our trauma or so bought into that story that it becomes our identity. And I think it's really important that when we're talking about trauma that there's not that um almost one-upmanship and yeah well that happened to you but oh my god you know what happened to me and that we're able to hold space for each other when these conversations come up and i just find that you know even in my community and the people i talk to it's always oh well i was triggered and and we almost are using trauma and our stories of trauma as excuse for bad behavior right? So, well, I acted that way because I was triggered. And fair enough, but how do we transform those stories? How do we transform those experiences into something really um, beautiful and transformative and um, supportive and helpful? And I think that it's sort of like that pendulum. It swings far this way and then hopefully we come back and find somewhere in the center. Um, I walk with a lot of women in different areas of my life that that have truly experienced some horrific trauma and I myself you know from the age of six I grew up in an alcoholic home, a home of addiction. Um, I started being sexually abused at the age of six um, my mother died of addiction by the time she was 39. My father was a very abusive alcoholic. And I don't need to make that who I am. Yeah. Does, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's all part of, it's all part of who I am. Um, and through a lot of work, I've been able to transform that into a space um, where I can support other women that have gone through these types of things. Yeah. And, it, and it's a part of who we are, but it doesn't need to be our identity. Yes. And exactly. I feel like when there's what I've seen in my life is that when we lose, and again, this is only my interpretation, um, which is a very ignorant interpretation, but like when I see when we lose like the space between this is who I am because this happened to me and this now becomes my identity, there becomes a loss of accountability in between those two factors. You know, when I feel like it becomes like an identity, like then that's when these things like trigger us, then we want to not be held accountable for like the actions that then ensue past that. But when we know that it's a part of our lives and this is a part of our story, 
we identify with being a little bit more accountable for our actions because we realize it's something that we need to work on to be able mm-hmm. to improve ourselves. Yeah, 100%. And I think that's the key is, is taking that stuff and doing that work that's required. So we're not triggered by everything. You know, I have, uh, have had that experience. Well, I'm sorry, I treated you badly. But you know, I was triggered, you triggered me, this triggered me, you know, even in some of our ceremonial stuff, people will just be you know, constantly in that place of reliving the trauma and staying there stuck. And it breaks my heart because it's an awful place to be when your identity is, is formed and built around things that were done to you mm-hmm. rather than taking those things. And transformation is the word that I use. You know, the woman I was 10 years ago, you know, from my trauma came a lot of things, you know, addiction. I, as I said, I grew up in addiction. I, um, had my own journey through uh, alcoholism and addiction. My, um, I have a, had a son who at five weeks of age suffered a massive brain injury from a hospital mistake. And that in itself is a form of trauma, you know, and we spent uh, the first seven years of his life were just incredibly brutal. Um, you know, he was so catastrophically brain injured from this nursing error that, you know, he had 21 medications a day, about a hundred seizures a day, cortically blind. He needed suctioning. He needed 24 hour day care. And for that seven years, I lived in constant state of anxiety, panic, fear. And when he was about seven, uh, he stabilized a bit and I started drinking again. And within a year, my life fell apart. I was in treatment. I was in terminal stage addiction. Um, <clears throat> you know, and he, he ended up passing away when I was about four years in recovery. And so there's all these different pieces of these things that I've experienced. And when I came into recovery, this whole new world opened up to me of accountability and responsibility and doing that healing work so that that wasn't my story is that I could take all of these things from the sexual abuse at six, my alcoholic parents, my own addiction, my son, and take all those little pieces. You know, I like to think of it as, as like a mosaic or a tapestry, all those threads, all those pieces and weave them into something really beautiful. And we can do that. You know, I see it every day. We all have that inherent ability. And there's so much conversation. You know, there's all kinds of podcasts. There's women supporting women coming out in a way that that we haven't before. And again, we swing so far. You know, I'm really hopeful that there will be that swing back to the middle where you know, women are speaking out, but it becomes almost an us against them where, you know, women are, um, it's, it's women against men. And I don't believe that to be so. Like, I think there's a lot of men that carry pain and trauma and all of this toxic sort of masculine stuff. And where do we come together to support each other where it's not, you know, women against men, traumatized against not traumatized, all this 
that mix of things and how do we come together as human beings you know it's even like the spirituality sort of movement you know i always say don't get so spiritual that you forget to be human and we we tend to sometimes get up on this pedestal with our tarot cards and our reiki crystals and our whatever that that it's almost a toxic spirituality at times and so where do we find that balance of being really beautifully flawed and really beautifully human and acknowledging all of these experiences that we've had because we all have them to some degree and it's so important that we start seeing each other beyond, you know, you had mentioned something as we were talking earlier about this idea that we somehow have to be super successful. We have to be Gabby Bernstein or we have to be whatever to be valued or to be worth something. And I don't believe that, you know, I think that that we all come to the table with inherent gifts and things that we can offer to this world And how do we get past the fear? For me, it's always been fear. I know I have these beautiful gifts. I love to write. I love to speak. I love to do these things. But I've trapped myself in a corporate world because I feel safe there. And if I'm not Marianne Williamson or Gabby Bernstein or whatever, why am I even bothering? And I had to get over that to even submit a chapter for this book that I'm doing to reach out to you and say, hey, I'd love to do a podcast. How does that work? Um, And there's a lot of fear. You know, I walked around this morning for 15 minutes kind of pacing and going, oh my gosh, is it going to be okay? Am I going to be good enough? And, And all of that fear that I think so many of us carry. And it's how do we face that fear and do it anyways? See, and you know, you know, to kind of like broach like a a few things that you've brought up along the way. Um, Like I really truly feel like we feel this fear in this angst and this anxiety and you know like that we're not enough and we we have to live up to this singular ideal of success because in western culture we've clearly defined there's only one way to be able to do things and mm-hmm. you kind of have to pick which side that you are going to believe you know like either you're christian you're catholic you're sikh you're hindu you're muslim if you're not one of those one, there's more, right? I just mean like when you're in mm-hmm. that lane, outside of that lane is wrong. If you're uh, liberal or you're conservative or you're NDP, if you're outside of your choice, you are wrong. You know, if you're not living the typical uh, American dream, you know, you're wrong. If you don't own a house, you're, you know, you, you don't have enough. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you don't have a six-figure job, you're never going to be able to provide for yourself. You need to have this, you need to have that. But the one thing that I've realized is that the more people allow the freedom to understand like there is no lane. And that's why to me, like, like Tao's philosophy, I I know that I preach this to the, (laughs) to the sky high now, but like, I love the core essence of it is that there is no path. Like there is no lane. Everything has value. We Mm -hmm. all have value. You're never going to know what your lane is. Don't try to be able to find it because there's benefit in every single lane. There's benefit in every opportunity. The only time there's not is when you choose a singular lane to be able to walk down because then you become closed-minded to everything else outside of Mm -hmm. that. You know, and then that's where you kind of touched on, you know, if we don't have this hyper-identification with it, now we're wrong. So if I'm not like a vegan, 
I need to be the best vegan. I need to be the one who preaches to everybody. Cause if not, <laughs> like I'm not a good enough vegan. It's just like, well, if I'm not, I don't need only need to be a Christian. I need to be the best Christian. If I'm not the best Christian, like I'm not a good enough one. And I can't represent like there's all of these different components that unless if you take what you identify with and you try to become like the best at that, you failed in some regard, mm-hmm. you know? And like, that's why like for me, what I continually tell people is like, I want to be the first person to just create the anthem of like, I'm mistakes. I will be more mistakes. I want to be wrong. I want to stumble through life because as I allow myself to stumble through life more, I achieve more and like mm-hmm. achieve more in multiple like different areas, like understanding who I am, having a sense of calmness and stillness inside of me, being more beneficial to the people around me, you know, like just having more rich communication in my life. Like, like I value and I love the conversation we're having right now. We're five or 10 minutes into it. We've never met before, but I can understand. I can feel and I can see in you that we obviously have, you know, some ideals that, you know, coincide in, you know, they have a synergistic relationship with each other. That's why this anthem needs to be out there. We need to be able to have this conversation so other people can identify, you know, with it as well, because the one thing I find is there's a lot of people who actually don't hyper identify with anything. You just feel like you need to, or like we feel like we need to. Mm-hmm. And then we also feel like the people who have achieved kind of like these pinnacles of success of what we deem to be success, that it's been easy for them to get there, or mm. it's easy to maintain, or they're not struggling inside. But like, I know some extremely successful people that are just dying inside, you know, and mm-hmm. I know some people who have nothing who are dying inside, like, we have we have this gap and we need to understand like what that gap is coming from and we are starting to understand like it's just human relationships and you know like human relationships being vulnerable because being vulnerable is going to allow you to be able to have growth Mm -hmm. you know because then we can identify with other people yeah and i love that idea of uh you know my whole mantra is about being flawed being beautifully perfectly human and i think a lot of the problem or the challenge is our society we are so hooked in you know everything's on facebook and it's so you know it looks so good right and yeah. everything looks so good everybody looks like they're doing so good and we've got to have the best of of everything and what are our ideas of success what are our ideas of beauty? You know, even on Facebook and part of what I write about in the book, you know, that returning to the wild, returning to nature, to ourselves is I have girlfriends that I look at their pictures on Facebook and they're so filtered with these apps that they use that they're not even recognizable and they are so beautiful already. And I see these filtered pictures and I always, you know, and, and without judgment, but more, with curiosity it's like what drives that you know I look at kids today and they've all got the brand new iPhones I live in a pretty uh you know a pretty affluent neighborhood they're all driving BMWs and and Mercedes and Range Rovers and and they're 16 17 years old um I was talking to a girlfriend the other day and she had two teenagers in the back seat and they were texting each other rather than talking to each other. So we've created this society that is so connected that we're so disconnected Mm -hmm. from each other. And we get these ideas of success. Like I said, you know, I have to be 
uh, on Hay House, you know, to be considered successful? And where does that belief system come from? And how do we change that conversation that being successful isn't necessary material? Being successful is not necessarily an Instagram moment because everything, we're so hyper connected that we're disconnected. People aren't having conversations. I'm awful for that too. You know, sometimes I'm like, oh God, don't phone me. Send me a text. (laughs) What are you doing calling me? You actually want to have a conversation? And, you know, it's, it's such an interesting world we live in today. And again, I actually have success. Yeah. And I find like one of like the, the biggest parts, like listening to other people and then even identifying this within myself is that, you know, like, yeah, I would rather people text me more times than not, you know, (laughs) instead of call me. But I realize what that's from is because we're just so tired of like all of the shit in our lives that like (laughs) we need the like we want to have this communication but it needs to be like passive in in our terms because we just have so much else. Like there's just, there's so much pollution like in our lives that just eats with us that, you know, things we truly want, like we identify, like I want to have this conversation, but I can't have it in a way that actually means something Mm -hmm. because I need to be slightly disassociated with it because I have all this other stuff I need to do. Like at the same time, that's what text allows us. Like, well, I can get back to you when I want to get back to you because I have all this other stuff. Well, but if you right. cruise through your Facebook feed and Instagram feed and say, <laughs> like, like, are you just filling your life with junk, you know, versus actually picking up the phone and having these meaningful conversations? And we're all guilty for it now. Yeah, hundred percent. And we've lost that human connection. I mean, they're saying that young people these days don't even know how to have conversation. And that's one of the things I love about some of the work that I do is, you know, with the Reiki, with now exploring, um, you know, this is a whole nother topic, but the death doula work, you know, changing those conversations and how we do things and human connection is so important. And we've almost, it's almost becoming an art because people don't know how to do it anymore. And yet, you know, in the recovery community, there's a real level of rawness and authenticity and uh, connection because we're dealing with a common problem. And so I really learned how to communicate in a really vulnerable, open way through being in recovery. Um, in my Reiki sessions, uh, there's always a long check-in before we actually do any body work where there's that real vulnerable ability. And that's what I love about the, if I can be flawed, if I can make mistakes, if I can be this safe space, it allows that for others. You know, that's one of my big, biggest things is I don't need to filter my pictures. I I have one on Facebook right now where I look like a 400 pound hunchback. And a girlfriend was like, oh my God, how'd you let that picture go on? Facebook and I said well you know whatever it was people know what I look like it's it's a bad picture but I I'm okay with that right because to me that that is a even a form of vulnerability a form of exposure um when we can be really real and say yeah you know what I am I'm overwhelmed most of the time and I have a girlfriend she's got five children four of them are like under the age of seven I think she's getting her master's degree she, um, you know, works 
in a, in a caring job. And I think, Oh my God, how do you do that? Like I've just got me and my partner, my job and trying to build a practice and I'm just overwhelmed. The reason I don't want to answer phone calls is because I have no juice. Not that I don't want to connect with you or love you or care about you. It's just, I'm so overwhelmed and it's become, I've really noticed within myself, people say, how are you? Oh, I'm good, but I'm so busy. Oh, I'm good, but I'm so busy. And busy has become almost a badge of honor. Oh, I'm great. And most of the time we're not even busy. Like that's the worst part is (laughs) like, I'm busy doing it. It's just like, well, what do you have to do? It's like, well, nothing, but I'm busy. I like, I got to fold laundry. I got to this. And it's like, well, no, those are just things you have to do. Like, that's just called life. Like, that's just right. real life. You know, it's like we kind of need to get past the, like, that I'm busy and overcoaching ourselves into thinking that, you know, like that we're so busy, right? But um, you brought it up. And it's one thing that I absolutely <laughs> want to talk about is the death doula. Like, I yeah. had no idea that death doulas even existed. Like, like everything you know, throw it out there. Like, I'm so <laughs> intrigued. And I didn't want to Google it. Like, I always like to hear it from people. I like to understand. I want to be encapsulated in the experience too, but I had no idea a death doula existed. So spill the beans. Okay. So we've taken death out of the home. If you think even 30, 40, whatever years ago, people would have their loved ones laid out in the living room, you know, and people would come over and say their goodbyes. And and we kind of, uh, people grew up and then the, with with death around and the conversations about death, maybe more like 50 years ago before um, medicine, you know, good healthcare and all those things. So we've moved death into hospitals and we've moved death to be this thing that just isn't talked about. And we're all so um, afraid of it. You know, even as I've been taking this course and having conversations with people, They're so uncomfortable. There's either nervous laughter or changing the subject or, you know, some people are, of course, interested. But how do we, it's, we're all 100% guaranteed to die. But we spend no time planning it. We'll plan a year for a wedding. We prepare for births. We prepare for all these things. But most of us are unprepared for death. And especially unprepared for the death of a loved one. And so the death doula work is really almost mirroring birth doulas. You know, these are two pieces, these organic, beautiful, natural pieces of life. And we don't hold space for death. Most people don't have advanced care planning done. They don't know. I actually, as I started to take this course, I said to my partner, I don't even know what you would want. Do you want to be cremated? Do you want a big celebration? Do you want music? Do you not want music? Um, There's so many pieces to it. I haven't really even thought about what I want for myself. And most people haven't because we're not having those conversations. It's not like sitting down at dinner and going, Hey honey. So, you know, if you get cancer and you're laying in bed dying, what do you want? Well, that's because we're always taught that it's a morbid subject to talk about. The minute that you bring up death or anything, or if you were planning your will or, you know, like just doing any kind of planning, like people would think that you're morbid. Like this isn't something that you should be doing. But now like what I see is, you know, like because my mother has passed away and mm-hmm. like everything actually, she had everything laid out extremely easy. Like it was 
but like I've also seen other people's, you know, parents pass away or grandparents, you know, things like that where they don't have anything planned and it is a nightmare. Like it is an right. absolute nightmare. And, uh, but like, why shouldn't we, is it, why can't we talk? Like, because when you talk about it, like all I really hear is like, how can I honor you one last time? You know, like, like truly in a big way, like obviously we're always going to honor people that we love, like mm -hmm. continually through their lives. Like I think about my mom all the time, you know, but like, how can I honor you? Like we knew what my mom wanted. We knew she wanted to be cremated. Mm -hmm. You know, like we knew that she just wanted friends and family to get together and, you know, like try to have a good time to, re to remember life. Like, but it was, it'd be simple. Like it wasn't anything big, wasn't anything extravagant, you know, but that was our last chance to be able to like honor this woman who gave us all so much. You know, and, mm -hmm. and like I now I know exactly what my dad was because like, you know, after, you know, like both my grandparents passed away, you know, my mom passed away. Like he said to him and his sisters, like, we need to get this figured out. Like we need to know because this can either be really easy or it can be really hard. And the only people that's going to make it hard on us, not us, is the people we're passing it off to. Right. And so opening up those conversations and the work of a death doula really is to hold that space is to hold that space for families and help them navigate. You know, if you can get a death doula involved early on, there's things like advanced care planning that we can do is what do you want? What does that look like? Um, having all of those structured things in place, because if you hadn't known what your mom wanted, you would have had a totally different experience. And so we can create, a beautiful exit. We can create legacy. There's even apps now, legacy apps, where the person who is at their end of life can can record stories in this app to leave for their, um, you know, loved ones, for their grandchildren, for their children, for whoever. Um, it's it's really walking people through that end of life piece in a really beautiful way and holding space for the family because when a loved one is dying it's it's stressful no matter what you know and so to have someone there to help you navigate um that journey you know we call them journeys really the person who is is leaving is an island you know, most of them now we're talking, obviously sudden death is a totally different thing. You can't plan for that, but we're talking, you know, terminal illness, the aging population. We're coming to a time when 65% of, or something like that of the population is going to be an aging population and we're not prepared for that. And so moving death out of the hospital into hospice, back into homes, what does that look like? There's a lot of things people don't know. You know, my son passed away six years ago and I didn't realize that I could have actually had time with him afterwards because everything moves so fast and people, you know, the funeral homes called and they want to take him away. And I was blessed that I got a few hours with him just because the funeral home was late. But we actually have a legal right. You could t actually take your loved one home and and be with them for 24 hours if you so wanted and that's not for everybody but for some people it is but how many people even know that right like i had no idea like i did like like i've been through this like with with my mom like i had absolutely no idea that that was ever an option like would i express that option i don't know tough to say really i have absolutely no idea at this point mm -hmm. Um, would I express it in the future? Maybe, maybe not. I think it's time specific, but knowing that you have that option, like, I think we all need to know things like that, right? You know, and it's even like what you were saying about like, 
recording like these these stories on apps mm-hmm. for people to go back to where people might think well that's you know again morbid you know like why are you doing that you know like all this negative um you know association with that experience but like really what's the difference of a picture or a video or anything that we'll go back and look at videos of this person like what's the difference if they told some stories or just like hey i want you mm-hmm. to remember these good things about me be the same thing as if you watched a video of them playing soccer or by a campfire or you know fishing one time like these are all just like little memories that like we can go back to and leverage because we love and we respect these people yeah and even more meaningful when there are these legacy programs and legacy things that we want to do because there's so much meaning behind it you know when somebody knows they're leaving a lot of things get said and so the death doula role it really is to provide resources to educate um, a lot of times during the death process too. Like I was shocked to learn in medical school and all these things. They don't actually even look at the dying piece because they're focused on saving lives. But doctors don't even take courses about death and dying. And, you know, there's a, a real systematic, almost a shutting down of the machine that happens. And so allowing families to know, like sometimes, yeah, the breathing will change. That's really normal because there's fear around that stuff. And so the death doula there really is not to interfere or change anything, but to hold that space and support the family. I know our teacher was telling us she has a journal when she does um, her death doula work and she'll write notes for the family for when she's there it also helps uh everybody's as we said busy and working and all those things knowing that there's somebody there with your loved one at the times that you cannot be that understands what your family wants um and understands the needs of the dying so that they can help support you in that way there's also a vigiling piece there's people that pass away that have nobody and so Um, through hospice, a lot of death doula work is done vigiling and sitting with people at the end of their life who don't have family or perhaps their family is estranged or whatever it is to provide that place. And there's a lot of conversation about it now and it's becoming, it's actually being written into strategic plans for um, hospice care, the death doula piece. There's now, I'm taking, the course I'm taking is at Douglas College. It's the only recognized certificate program that um, sort of, there's no regulation yet, but these are the things that are changing because we need to start talking about it. It's, it, it's the one thing that we're all guaranteed to do. But like you said, there's this idea that it's morbid um, and that there's something wrong with talking about it. And it's absolutely not. I mean, most of us will spend at least a year planning a wedding, but we plan nothing around our deaths. Well, and I think the thing is too, for to like to bridge a pretty big gap here, like this again is a Western culture thing. Like this is not like globally around the world. Like, because I know that for like 30 something years of my life, like I really misidentified like what's happening around us is happening around the world, mm-hmm. but it really isn't like not even remotely close because almost in every other culture around the world. And you look historically through time, like death has been celebrated in some kind of way by a ceremony, you know, by mm-hmm. like these things. And like, you were like, just like different practices 
but we kind of just got to a point where like, okay, well, this person goes to the hospital. Okay. Well, you know, like they, they passed away or they died, you know, like now the funeral takes on, it's just like this kind of process just goes through and we've never questioned it. Like we've just kept on going along with it, but now it's nice to see that we're kind of coming back Because even when you were saying, well, what about the people who don't have anybody when they're passing away? And I was like, wow, the, you could feel more alone, like knowing that you're going to die and that there's nobody there to mm-hmm. be share that experience with you and be able to have like the services of a death doula for, for those times. Cause mm-hmm. like, as you were talking to all, well, you know, like what if you're in a situation where like you have to work and you know that there's a vast majority of the time that your mom or your dad or your child is in this, like this care at this hospital and you don't have representation. You've been having a mm-hmm. death, like, like seeing like these holes in like these gaps, like that do and should be filled. I think that like, I can definitely see why death doulas are on the rise, like why people are getting into this and why we should be supporting this because what a great resource for people to have. It really is. And, you know, part of some of the things that we're doing and talking about is there's now death cafes. So basically you go and you eat cake and drink coffee and talk about death so that we can take that stigma away from it. We can take that idea that it's morbid or wrong or that we're somehow inviting death. I think there's that idea too, that if I start to talk about my own death, I'm kind of saying, Hey, Grim Rupert, here I am. Right. And that's not it at all. It's, it's a really, and he already knows where you are too. (laughs) Right. You know, (laughs) but we get that, that, idea you know oh my gosh don't talk about that um and when the conversations happen they're really organic and they're really beautiful and really interesting you know we had a a woman in our class who she was talking about she's like yeah I thought about putting my ashes in a cake so that everybody could eat it we were like oh my god you can't do that people can't eat your ashes but it was just in you know people have these ideas of what they want um one of our instructors is going to be composted. So now in Seattle, they actually have body composting. So they have this facility where the bodies are put in and, yeah. and the bodies at the bottom have become composted. They use it for the earth. Yeah. You know, what a concept. And Which that's how it's um, always been. Like, cause we used to typically be buried in these pine boxes as we know, yeah. you know, like where you just be in and you became just a part of the earth again. It's only now yeah. these caskets that, we can't escape from, you know, like that they eventually pull out of the <laughs> ground or whatever. Anyway, so like, it's just, it's nice that again, we might be putting a new face on it, you know, but like the thing, like a lot of these concepts have always existed. We just, mm-hmm. we changed them for, you know, like six or seven decades, you know, but now we're kind of getting back into it, realizing, okay, well, we should go back to that, but what's today's face for it? Like, you know, like how can we mold this into today's world you know because you know like you were saying before where like there's this massive population that's you know going to pass away pretty soon well do we even know like like cemeteries that are all time high like there's no space in them at all so like yeah where's the conversation where if you if you don't want to be cremated but there's no space for you to go to a cemetery or what if you have to be shipped halfway across canada to be buried in a cemetery there you're like Mm -hmm. what are the options like I don't think anybody has the answers to those questions because who's been faced with them, but like we're definitely being faced with them now. For sure. And you know, some of the, some of the cemeteries are starting to almost stack, right? Stack coffins. And so we do need to have these conversations because that, that way of doing things isn't always 
the best. So, you know, of course you hear about being planted in, in a tree or these pods or cremated, what do you want to do with your ashes? But that's, those conversations need to start happening because also we have, and I don't know if there's more cancer or more, I think we just know more about it because of our connectedness through social media, through internet, all of that stuff. But what do we do for our people when they're ill? How do we support them? How do we make it so that it becomes, you know, one of my uh, colleagues said a beautiful exit. And I love that, right? Because, and another uh, term in a book that, that we're using in the class is walking to the gate. How do we walk our people to the gate? Right. And I love that analogy and that almost visualization of, of walking them to the other side. And, you know, for me, I have really strong beliefs about um, there is, you know, a, a camp on the other side of the river, that there is star nation, that there are, we become ancestors and all of this. So I'm blessed in that way through my own ceremony and through my own cultural beliefs and the things that we do. Um, that there's something really beautiful. You know, my son has come to me in visions and dreams as a raven. And so I carry a lot of raven medicine and raven symbology comes around quite a bit and I've dreamt of him because his, he was so trapped in his body here on earth and he came to me in a vision he came to me in a dream saying that creator gave him wings so he could be free you know because he he suffered that time here on earth and I love that you know it gives me comfort and how can we help people find ceremony in their own way whatever you know when I support people I don't necessarily bring any of my indigenous teachings into the into that space because it may not be for them how do I put all of my beliefs and my ideas aside and come in and find out what theirs are what's important to them what what do they want or need you know one of the things is dignity and it's not, you know, the, the cancer in room four, it's Mary. Mary had a life. Mary was a, a teacher and a mother and a grandmother. And we need to bring that connection back. And the death doula is sort of that intercessor or that, that intermediary between the person who is walking to the gate Mm -hmm. and the people who love them, who want to walk to the gate with them. And how do we do that in a meaningful, beautiful way? And it is like, what a great concept of like, is then it makes you feel like that you're offering these people, we're offering these people we love, like another place to go to be able to be cared for, you know, mm-hmm. no matter what you believe in just saying like, like, let me help you get to the next space no matter what you believe that space is you know whether it's everything or nothing like just let me help get you there because that's the only place that I can help you get to Mm -hmm. and that's like that final that final resting place but what what an amazing absolutely amazing concept yeah I'm loving it and you know what sparked me with this was obviously my own experience um my son passed away at Canuck Place which is it it was the first freestanding hospice for children in North America. It is an absolutely beautiful, incredible space. It's in a, in a converted mansion in Shaughnessy. 
it's all, it was all started by uh, one nurse who believed that there needed to be something and she based it on a model in the UK and, and started this. It's, mo it's, I think it's 90 something percent privately funded, but it's a place for children and their families at that end of life. They call it a place between heaven and earth. And I had such a beautiful experience there with my son. You know, we had a big, beautiful, bright room with big windows, real bed. Like it was not institutionalized at all. There's a huge kitchen uh, for family style meals with the other families. And you are supported in every way through pain management. You know, they have a, an incredible anesthesiologist and, and pain medicine specialist who is the director there who really explains, you know, the process and, and how to, how to manage the pain for your loved one. And especially with children, right. You know, and they create this beautiful space. So I had that experience where, you know, I held my son in my arms when he took his last breath supported and surrounded by family they have a family room upstairs where people you know your family members from out of town can come stay and that's how it should be or how I would hope it could be and and then recently um one of my uh, very close friends uh was in hospice with cancer and I was able to go see her a couple times and and lay hands on her and do Reiki and sing to her. That was something that she had asked to have our ceremonial songs sung. <clears throat> and it was such a beautiful experience to be able to go. And, you know, when I got there the first time, she was like, oh, I smell bad and blah, blah, blah. You know, she was still pretty cognizant. And I was able to say, like, no, don't worry about it. And to be able to touch her and rub her feet and just love her she instantly got quiet. She fell asleep. Like it was just this really beautiful connection. And I sang to her and I came back a second time and she was, you know, closer to the end. Um, and I was able to just be there and show her by that laying of the hands, by all of those things that I didn't care that she smelled. I didn't care that, you know, she was in her gown and it wasn't pretty because sometimes death isn't, but to be able to have it be beautiful mm -hmm. anyways. And, you know, just that comfort of touching her and rubbing her feet and singing and being there with her. I just thought, Oh my gosh, this is, this is what I want to be doing. There is so much purpose. There's so much meaning to this. And, you know, I, I, I have my corporate job. I, I, I'm good at it. I love it. I make good money, but it's not, it's not my, what I feel is my purpose. And a lot of that comes from that, what, where we started the conversation is that trauma is that experience that I've had in my life. Is there so much that I can offer in, in that holding of space for people, you know, the women I walk with through, through addiction and alcoholism, mental health issues through my Reiki practice, those moments of connection, of vulnerability, of real conversation about the places where we hurt. Mm -hmm. is so, it, so beautiful. 
So it actually just, I got an idea, but I, w I want to ask you uh, this question first, because it's going to segue into my idea. Okay. Um, <laughs> is that, can you give us kind of like a real respectful sky high view of the ceremonies that you, um, that you offer? Like I said, being respectful of like the ceremonial process, but just so people have an idea of what you're talking about when you refer to that. And then I'm going to segue that into my question. <laughs> Okay. Um, so I don't really offer ceremonies. I do some of my indigenous, you know, singing and drumming and those types of things in some of my work, especially my Reiki work. But I am uh, part of a community that we have a, a ceremony in the summer. That's what we call our new year. We dance and we fast for four days with no food, no water. Um, and the purpose behind that is we, we, we suffer and we struggle so that the rest of the world, the people we love, the world at large, maybe can suffer a bit less. That we, um, and to prepare for that ceremony, um, we do a four-day vision quest. So basically it's me by myself on the side of a mountain or under a tree somewhere for four days and four nights with no food, no water, praying. And, and it, it's called humbleche, crying for a vision. And so we go, we do that to purify and to prepare ourselves for the bigger ceremony in the summer. And so for me, that ceremonial piece has created that space for healing, that space for community. Um, and that's really what I bring as, as a woman, as an indigenous woman, as a, a ceremonial woman into everything I do because we have seven teachings that go around that. I am a pipe carrier. I am a, you know, all these things that are again, all pieces of who I am, but it, it helps me to walk in a different way. And most of us that come to these ceremonies come because we're wounded because we're seeking something bigger than us because we want to be better. And I don't mean better in that monetary successful way, but be better humans. Mm -hmm. For me, it's all about that opening of, you know, if you came to me and wanted to talk to me about things that have hurt you, things that, that there's a safe, non-judgmental, loving, compassionate space for you to be blank, to be all of those raw things without having to be on where you know it's safe, where there's nothing that you can say to me that's going to make me love you less. Like I tell the women that I sponsor and that I walk with, um, there's nothing you can do. Like, I don't love you in spite of your stuff. I love you because of it. We get so caught up in behaviors and what people do and it's them and it's this and it's that. And we forget to see beyond the behaviors to spirit. And so being in ceremony, doing all this work that I've done over the last decade really has allowed me to see people beyond their behaviors, beyond all that stuff into who they actually are. You know, if we could see each other's stories 
all of the things that happened, maybe we'd be a little bit kinder to each other. You know, I, I saw this thing on Facebook, but it was saying somebody was driving behind a car and on this car, there was a sign that said, uh, just learning stick, please be patient with me, blah, blah, blah. And she said, you know, I saw the sign, so I slowed down and I was patient and I was kinder. But if that sign hadn't been there, how would I have reacted? Probably impatiently, pissed off, you know, racing around them, giving them the finger, whatever, because we don't know what's going on. But when we know what's going on, we can be a little bit kinder. And I think this world needs more of that. We need to be holding each other up. We need to be able to say, it's okay that you're hurting. It's okay. We, we have the society that you, it's not okay to be not okay. I, my, after my son died, I, it was, you know, maybe a year later, I think it was maybe his birthday or something. I was at work and a, a woman said to me, Oh, don't be sad. He's in a better place. And I said, well, I think it's really appropriate to be sad. Are you uncomfortable with me being sad? Because we're uncomfortable with each other's emotions. We don't want to be depressed or angry or any of these things. Oh, well, take a pill. Everybody's medicated. Everybody's on all these things because we don't know how to lean in. Like, I'll tell you, lean in. It passes faster. Yeah. And it's real. Like, we're not supposed to be happy and joyous 24-7. And if we're not, we think there's something wrong with us. And those are some key things, you know, like when, um, you know, when I went through uh, my divorce, my sister said to me, she's like, you know, like, just allow yourself to be able to feel like, don't, don't stop it. Like, don't feel as though that, you know, it has to change, you know, just allow yourself to be able to feel how you're feeling because mm-hmm. that's what allow you to be able to deal with it. And then you'll be able to deal with it better and you'll be able to deal with it quicker. And you'll be, you'll, you'll develop the skills to be able to process emotion. You know, like mm-hmm. that was some great advice. And then the one thing that, you know, like as you're talking about where there's this sign on this vehicle, it's like, doesn't that go to show you how far we've lost the human experience? Because why do we need a sign? Like, right. why do we need a sign to like get inside of ourselves and say like, I should be patient with this. You know, when we can look around like clearly there might be a reason, like, why do we need a sign to paint yeah. for us the reason of why we need to have emotional control? Because most of us are self-consumed and that's the thing, right? We're not other centered anymore. We're all so self-centered. Like how, again, how do I look on Facebook? How do I look on Instagram? What do people think of me? And, and it's exhausting. And when we let down the veil, when we can be human, when we can uh, not filter every picture that we post, when we can say, I'm having a hard time. I'm hurting. I'm not okay. I'm tired. I'm depressed. I'm overwhelmed. That's okay. You know, it's like nature, you know, part again, going back to, to some of the writing in this book, when I was thinking about what does it mean, you know, unleashing her wild and returning to that really natural cycle of life that, you know, everything in nature works in perfect unison, except for us. Literally. Except for us. Literally Uh, to a T. To a T. And constantly hustling and grinding and phone. I have two phones. I have two computers sitting here right now. I have a MacBook. I have an iPad. Like, 
and it, it sucks the life out of me. And thank God I belong, part of my cer- ceremonial stuff is I, I sweat in EP Lodge, sweat lodge every weekend. And I'll tell you, I get out on the grounds and last weekend it was raining and I laid in the grass in the pouring rain in my bare feet in my dress and put my face in the dirt and smelled the earth. And it just reminds me who I am. And it reminds me of what's important. And so few of us have that opportunity, you know, end of November, most of us aren't walking around barefoot, rolling around in the grass. And so I'm really blessed in that way. But it reminds me, you know, I'm, I'm 51 years old. I've been through all of this stuff. And I'm like, what do I, what do I want to do with that? And if it's a podcast here and a chapter in a book and walking with a bunch of women who I love and who love me, is that enough? Is that successful enough? It absolutely is because I think that, you know, even in a situation like this, where it's like, where people hear like the human stories, like the stories behind it, you know, like, like this is what we all need to get back to sharing. Cause this is where we put that front. And I used to do this for the vast majority of my life is like, I, I wanted to be able to deal with who I was on my own. But like, mm-hmm. now I'm like, who can help me with this shit? Cause like, I clearly don't have any <laughs> right? control. I'm like this. I might have like this meat vehicle that I walk around in all day, but I'm like, I clearly don't have my shit together. So I'm like, we really, I'm like, I need some help here. Like, let's all figure this out because like, I need to be able to change some things in my life. But, but I just feel like it used to scare me to say that before. Like, I didn't want to say things like that. And I think that more people, you know, that can identify with it and, you know, that that'll help us all heal because that's what like that experience is. And that's where we form like these little subculture groups and say, we can get together and we can talk to this because we feel safe with them. We don't feel safe in the broader community anymore, which is understandable because our communities never used to be a thousand or 10,000, a hundred thousand, a million, tens of millions. Mm-hmm. Like, like, but these are our communities now that we have to operate in our, our communities before used to be like 10 or 50 or a hundred or 200. Like, max you know like we know statistically that about 175 people is like the best for us like that's the best group or number in our group in our community that we should be exposed to but like I come across more people than that like probably in the first two hours when I wake up in the morning you know which is then like all these people have influence and exposure to us because you know now we've exposed ourselves to this community online on Facebook where you have all of this external influence. And again, mm-hmm. like what we talked about at the beginning, I don't edit, you know, like I don't filter I, like any of the podcasts. I've never put a filter on any of my photos that I've posted online because I just want something to be real. Like, Authentic. like I want something to be like, <laughs> Hey, like everything can't be just like hyper adapted to being perfect because I want, I don't want to live up to that expectation. Like I really do not want to participate in that because it sets me up for failure. Like, I want to live in a world that's not perfect because I'm not perfect. It makes me easier or makes it easier for me to be able to mm-hmm. live my life. For sure. And then we create that paradigm shift, right? Where it's like, if I'm okay being flawed and being human and I'm really open about it, it gives others permission almost to do that as well. You know, it creates again, that space, that safety, that, that real authentic, connection because there's we're lacking that so much the authentic real 
conversations and connection. Like this is probably one of the longest conversations I've had in ages because of that, you know, the rat race and the doing this and the doing that. And when we slow down and we, we talk to each other, there's so much that opens up and we see that we're all, we're all the same. You know, that's one of the things I've learned with the amount of women that have that I've had the blessing and the privilege to support and walk with and who have supported me. The circumstance might be different. The outside stuff might be different. But at the end of the day, inherently, human beings are the same. We want to be loved. We want to be accepted. You know, we want to be happy. Well, and that's why I always tell people, and you know, like Sarah Pritchard, when she was on the podcast a few weeks ago, like we talked about this extensively, but I tell this to people all the time, you know, before I'm a man or a woman, before I'm anything, like I just want to be a human. I think if, if we kind of break down like the concepts of anything, just get back to like just being a human. Like I just, I want to be mm-hmm. a human. Like that's, that's all I want to be because it allows so much more freedom. Like it doesn't have to be like, well, I need to be around these guys to be a better guy. You know, like I don't need to be around, you know, like women to fill this void in my life. I just need to be around other human beings mm-hmm. who authentically care for me. And that's like the most important part. Um, so this kind of brings back into like one of the questions <laughs> I want to ask you is, can you describe the, like, the benefit and the battle that you fight going through like this four days without food or water, because I have never in my life gone through without food for four days and four nights and water and like in everything. Like, like how does it start? Like, where do you go through? Like, do you go through huge highs and lows emotionally? Like, like, is it just like, like just like, can you explain it? I'm so interested to know because you do it individually and then you do it as a part of a group, right? Right. So there are sort of two different pieces to it. So the individual piece is a little bit easier because you're very still. You're within uh, a very small area that you don't leave. Um, and really you're just sitting and praying and singing and being with your medicines and stuff. So it's a little bit easier, but usually, you know, our, our almost a joke in the community is day three, right? Day three really is where the, the thirst is uh, almost unbearable. Um, hunger for me, the hunger goes away in both ceremonies within, after the first day, I never think about the hunger really. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always there kind of in the background, but it, it's, it's okay. Like it doesn't, but the thirst builds. Um, and then in the, the larger ceremony and, and the reason we call it crying for a vision is, is in that time when you're praying and you're alone, I'll tell you, there's no pen, no book, no phone, no nothing. It is you and whatever your creator or higher power or God is and nature. And so you really get intimate (laughs) with yourself. Well, just one thing, sorry to interrupt you. The one thing I was just thinking of when you were saying it, because you've highlighted before is when these ceremonies were first started, people were deprived of a lot less. But like you think of what you're going into that environment with now, like, you know, like our angst around not being around our phone and yeah. Wi-Fi and social media and like, like, you know, like our job, you know, like all of these things. Like, so when we go through them, like, like emotionally and spiritually, we're going through a lot more of like an existential battle than like what people were, you know, 
hypothetically, I guess, like when they first started going <laughs> through these ceremonies when they were created. So that it seems like they would actually be harder to go through now than what they ever were when they were first created. Do you like, yeah, you I, 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 I think that there's something definitely to that. I mean, we're in such a privilege, especially here in, in, in the West, you know, in the Western culture, we are so privileged. I don't think people realize, you know, like you said, I mean, I've got things, I've got more than I could ever, ever need in my life and everything, you know, most of what I want. And so, yeah, so I'm hooking from the phone and hooking from everybody. It's a really interesting experience and it's really profound. And it can be very hard, you know, that it, it, I almost get sort of uh, in the first, the first day is usually good. You're kind of, you know, oh, okay, this is great. And, you know, day two is a bit harder because you're on your own and nothing. You've got no stimulation. So you're really just working through your own stuff, a lot of prayer, singing, you know, that kind of thing. We try and stay up at night because that's really when the spirits come. And when, if you're, uh, you know, for me, I've had visions, I've had those really profound spiritual experiences um, during that time. And then the greater ceremony um, is uh, our dances in Hawkslip Reserve up in, in Lillouette. People can come, people can come support. Um, and we, it's uh, an arbor and we dance. There's a tree in the center, our sacred tree of life. And we dance collectively. So the men and the women, um, we don't speak to each other. We don't look at each other. We don't talk to each other. Um, we don't look at the supporters because when we go into that sacred arbor, we're considered holy. We purify. That's why we we're in there. We're not eating. We're not drinking. We're there strictly to pray for the people. And it's a, a totally different thing because you're, there's drumming, there's music. Uh, when we're dancing, it's, it's life altering, you know, even for friends of mine that have come to support the power and the beauty and the, the ceremony itself is life altering, mm -hmm. but dancing is, yeah, like again, day three usually is the hardest day. Um, you're thirsty. If it's hot, it's really hard. The first year I danced was 37 degrees every day. Oh, wow. Um, then the last two years were freezing cold, which is equally as hard, but we don't get to choose how we suffer. <laughs> um, but it's a really beautiful ceremony. But yeah, you really, you want to know who you are and how you um, stand up to adversity and challenge. And it is physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually the hardest thing I've ever done in my life and the most beautiful, fulfilling, incredible thing I've ever done in my life. So, you know, having that platform to bring into all of these other things that I do and that I want to do, which I think where the disconnect with my, my real job, my day job, where that's really becoming evident for me is they're so not aligned. And so, you can know, you explain to, to people what you or do you not want to go there with what your day job is? Well, I'm a corporate operations manager for a large franchise company. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I really am just 
on a computer all day long. I have six email streams that I manage. I manage 70, well, there's uh, 55 locations that are operating plus ones that are sold, plus managing all of the sales for the franchise. So it's extremely demanding. I'm usually like literally glued to a computer for 11 hours a day. Um, and I support the CEO. So I, I do all of her scheduling. It's really, it's really busy <laughs> and it's, it's a lot. Yeah. And the reason why that I wanted you to kind of go mm-hmm. into it a little bit is with, to build the the connection with when you feel that you're disconnected with who you are versus Mm. what you have to do every day. Because like what you have to do every day is wake up and it's that (laughs) completely (laughs) different than who you identify with, which puts us again in a very, like, you know, a very, very big flux with inside of us is like, well, well, how do I live in this environment every day that I know I need to kind of be into some extent, but I don't really want to be in it. But the, what you've developed is all the management techniques to be able to see it through. And that's the one thing I say to people all the time, like we just happen to live in this world and we can't really fully disconnect with it. You know, we can and we can't, right? But what are you doing to counter all of this other shit all of the time? <laughs> you know, and like you're doing it. Like, you know, like you, you know, you're going to be like a death doula, which helps fulfill that need in you. Like you do these ceremonies individually and as part of a group, which helps fulfill that. You know, like, you know, you have these women's groups that you're a part of. Like, like you have all these things that just nurture like who you are and balance your energy out because like your day job sucks it out of you and it sucks it out of everybody. Like, like there's not a person who's adapted to be able to handle what you do every day because that's not who we are as human beings. Like mm-hmm. who we are as human beings is not to sit in front of a computer screen for 11 hours a day, replying to six emails, dealing with 55 franchises, you know, yeah. and being supportive to like a CEO. Like that's just, that's not life. Like no matter that, that might be our face of life now, but it's not actually life how we should be living it. Right. Um, the, the one part that I also want to dabble in here too is, did you choose to be able to offer like Eastern modalities to people to, um, because it coincides with who you are as a person because um, respectfully you can't offer like indigenous ceremonies and this is kind of like a bridge in between that. Like, because obviously like you're very connected with like your indigenous community, you know, but you offer like, you know, kind of like, eastern chinese you know like modalities and you know, like very eastern approaches which there's an extreme amount of similarities between the two like it's you know like that's the one thing like i don't want people to think that like there's a, a vast difference between them um but mm-hmm. do you do it out of like respect because indigenous ceremonies are sacred to indigenous people um and who can participate in them and like in eastern modalities are a way for you to be able to offer similar services to build that connection yeah i mean i think there's a lot of pieces there for sure. I mean, if anybody ever charge you for an indigenous ceremony, you should run the other way because it's not our way. It's not how we do it. You know, if people are interested in sweat lodge or any of those things, then usually for me, it's about why are they called to it? Are they called to it? And I would invite them to come or something. It's not, you know, it's gotten trendy too, right? Like when I was growing up, it wasn't cool to be an Indian right? You know, I, I suffered a lot of abuse, a lot of bullying. I was called a lot of names, you know? Um, but now I, it's almost, yeah. you know, swung to up, the other yeah, side. I, where everything's cool. Yeah. <laughs> I grew up in Southern Alberta, um, yeah. where there was a, like, 
you know, like kind of like looking at it, you know, back then and, you know, like I almost am ashamed to admit it, but again, it's just a part of my past. I can't, I really, it was almost like, you know, like white people versus Indians. Like that's mm-hmm. like almost kind of how people perceived it. Cause you know, like even in schools, there was segregation, you know, but then there's segregation because all the like Indians lived on reserves, mm-hmm. you know, and like, you know, like there were still some people like lived it, um, like indigenous people who lived in Lethbridge, but like, you know, where, you know, even when you were driving down some roads in Southern Alberta, when you'd get to like reserved land, there would be big signs that would mm-hmm. say like, you're not allowed to come on this land. Mm-hmm. You know, so like, like, that's how I grew up. Like I grew up where like, it was either you were this person or you were this person right. and not that we were just people. Yeah. And so, you know, there's some, it's, it's an interesting time for that too. Again, this pendulum that keeps swinging. Right. So, um, but you know, for what I was saying about the ceremonies, like I, that's not something we chart ever charge for. It's not something I would ever make a business of as, you know, being an indigenous teacher, I'm still learning myself. You know, I'm very young. I'm not in any way, shape or form an elder or a teacher or anything. I'm simply someone who walks this way. For me, the Reiki came when I first got sober, I started seeing this amazing woman, Reiki practitioner, and it changed my life. You know, going to see her for these treatments, the, the, the Reiki itself, but the connection with her. And so I've modeled my Reiki practice really on what she does, because there's this real component of, of like a, at least a half an hour sort of check-in before where there's that connection and working through issues. And then, you know, the, the, the Reiki combined with some massage, she brings some of the aspects of smudging and stuff like that. in. so I loved it. And it, it helped me heal so much. And I love the way that she teaches too, because nowadays you'll see on Facebook or on internet, Oh, get your Reiki, whatever in a weekend. Well, that is not how she, uh, is a practitioner or a teacher. My Reiki one and two certificate was about a year and a half learning the anatomy of Reiki, the gland systems, like really in-depth intensive uh, work. And then when I got my practitioner again, it was another almost year. I did a practicum, like she really does it in a way. And unfortunately there's no regulation. Like somebody, you could go to a Reiki practitioner who took a weekend online course and you can't harm anybody with Reiki, but it's sure nice when you understand what you're doing. See, so that's one of the reasons. Just one, one second, because I actually think you can harm people in situations like that. And I'll explain how, because when we take weekend courses and then claim ourselves to be at the right. same professional level as somebody else, I think it harms people because it devalues the service. Mm-hmm. So like, because I often looked at it like things like this, like different points in my life, because it's like, well, if like, how, like, how, how can you have like that same connection with people? Like where I feel things like, like Ricky, like you have to be a certain type of person. Mm-hmm. You're born that way. You're like, you slowly develop that, but like, there's this connection, but if you're just like answering an ad on Facebook <laughs> or if you're answering an ad from somewhere, like, like, I don't think that there's enough of you that should be that person Mm -hmm. so how can you heal other people with that modality and if you if you can't build that connection with people it devalues the service and that could steer people away from actually seeking like a proper Mm -hmm. reiki practitioner that can help them 
For sure. And especially during that check-in piece, like for me, I do have a bit of a counseling background as well. I went to Douglas, not Douglas, Vancouver Community College just took a, you know, a counseling course so that I could have some of those skills and some of that background and also my own experience. And I guess I just meant you can't harm them like in sort of in a physical way, but there's a lot of, but for sure, like I, I don't agree with that. I've seen, and I wish there was more regulation around some of these things, even the death doula course, you know, the reason I'm going to Douglas and it's a certification program and it's because that's, what's going to be recognized as regulation comes in. Cause right now anybody could just throw up a sign and say, I'm a death doula without really understanding those pieces. And so I think as society changes, I I'm hopeful that they're not regulation to the point of, of, whatever, but safety measures in place so yeah. that when people are doing these practices that people are safe. It's, it's like anything. People can hold themselves up. You know, there's a woman um, in our community, not in my community, but where I live, and she holds sweat lodge simmers. She charges people money. She, you know, and it's harmful. We call it bad medicine because that's not, that's not what it is. That's not what the spirit of it is. You know, even for me, I feel I, I don't feel uncomfortable talking about, it, but I always want to make sure that I'm being really respectful of the people that I share these ceremonies with, that I'm not holding myself up as any kind of expert or elder or anything. I'm just a woman who's privileged and honored to participate in these things. And I it's not like they're secret, but they're sacred. Mm-hmm. So it's like sharing enough, but not not making it like a a trendy thing or bragging, you know, so I, I really walk a fine line when I talk about my ceremonial life because it is so important to me because I have such a deep respect for it. And I have such a deep respect for my teachers and my elders that I wouldn't want to do anything um, harmful or anything that they considered maybe out of line or inappropriate. Right. So it's always kind of walking that, that line because it is part of who I am. I can't talk about, me without talking about that because that actually is the foundation of my life of everything else that comes out of that is who I am as a ceremonial woman right? See, and I, I've been a part of two uh, ceremonies like sweat life ceremonies in mm-hmm. my life and uh, whenever I've got in conversations with people who've never been um, you know to like a sweat lodge before it's hard to even connect with somebody to explain what that because mm-hmm. there's there's I feel like there's so many components to it um but like the privilege that I feel that I feel by it like just knowing that I've gone through it because it's not easy no. like the first <laughs> the first one was just like this real mediocre one that was like four hours and it was when I was really I was a teenager um and it was like intense um but the next one that I did was eight hours and it was in my 20s and uh yeah, like I, I will never be able to <laughs> somebody, and it just rocked me to the core of like human being. But I feel like I gained so much coming out yeah. of that stuff. But um, if there's ever an opportunity, I'd love to be able to go <laughs> with you and stuff for sure. Like if there's ever an opportunity that like a yeah, absolutely. Stuff, you I and I can absolutely talk about that. I would, yeah. I would be honored to yeah. to invite you and and share that experience with you yeah. and. Yeah, it's just something I've been really, really fortunate and blessed to find this path, you know, we call it the red road. And, and, it, and it also brings in, again, those teachings of what's successful, what's important. You know, I keep this 
day job because I will admit I love my trappings. Yeah. But at what cost? And this is where I'm at in my life is with submitting, you know, the, the kind of put my toe in and saying, okay, I'm going to submit a chapter for the book. Oh, and then it was accepted. I was like, oh my God, you know, asking to do some podcasts starting my Reiki business, you know, uh, one day a week to try and build clientele, those kinds of things so that I can step away. Cause it's not realistic. Like, yeah, I would love to just be a spiritual guru and healer and all that, but you know, baby, the bills still got to get paid. <laughs> <laughs> don't they ever, don't they ever, don't right. they ever. You got to put a little money in the bank, right? But, right. um, yeah. So the the one thing that if you don't mind, and again, like yeah. this is probably going to be like the most like sensitive subject all because we we've talked like extensively about like your experiences like through life and like where you're at today and like how strong you are and how like you just you have all these components where like you just you're starting to really figure it out and like you just you're at a really strong and powerful position in life to explore you, explore mm-hmm. opportunity and kind of explore a community. Um to be able to give other people like a sense of like, like where you've been to where you're at today to validate their struggle. Like, do you want to, or can you like talk about some yeah, of the struggles can... from when you were young? Just cause I feel like that's where, where like I've noticed like through these podcasts and like through my life where when people like they, they misidentify like with like their struggle and they were with kids is like, this is why I can't or won't be successful mm-hmm. later on in life. You know, and even if we can take like this knowledge of somebody's in a position where they mentor kids or, you know, like there's like a child in their life that they mm-hmm. can help kind of coach where like, if you could kind of, you know, offer like some of like the experience that you grew up in mm-hmm. and just like how hard that was for you and like how you like, hold yourself along that that road to be able to come out of it and persevere because like you clearly have your shit together so uh, (laughs) where a lot of people would have went the other way right so yeah and and it's so easy to to go the other way because there's a lot of pain that's associated so for me you know like I mentioned uh I grew up in this really chaotic home you know, my mom left when I was six due to her own addiction. And that's when the sexual abuse started from a neighbor, actually. And my father was so, you know, he was a high functioning, very cruel alcoholic. So he didn't really notice what was going on. And I lived my, I think we, I call them survival defects. You know, as children who are traumatized, we find these ways to cope. Um, and and mine led me through addiction, but I think the key piece is always recognizing inherently that voice inside of us that we all have that wants to embrace change, that wants to be better, that doesn't want that to be the story, you know, even with everything with my son. And I think sometimes it's our nature. I have a nature of responsibility. I have a nature of accountability. I have a nature of love. Really, like even the nurse that caused my son's brain injury, you know, I remember being so bitter and so angry and we sat down across from her and I looked in her face and I just broke down because I could see how much pain it had caused her too, right? And so I think forgiveness of others and ourselves 
is a huge piece. And, and I think sometimes people think forgiveness is like saying it's okay or whatever, but it's not, it's freeing ourselves. You know, I had to do a lot of work around understanding my mom, my father, all that stuff so that I could free myself from the story of it's their fault. They did this to me because it's not, they had their own stories and it kind of segues back to, to what we were talking about our stories. You know, when I think about my mom, somebody asked me once, do you know your mother's story? And I thought, well, not really. Right. And here's my mother's story was she grew up with a a father that abandoned her. She was pregnant at 16 with my older sister, married my dad, you know, moved. She had her story. She had her own pain and her own wounds as a woman, as a human. And I could only see her as my mother and all the ways that she had failed me. And when I stopped and I looked You know, I look at my father, he grew up, um, you know, half American, my indigenous side comes from my grandfather's side, from Oklahoma, and half Chinese. In Hong Kong, at a time when it was not okay to be half Chinese and half white. And he was he had a horrible time growing up and he had his own wounds and his own pain and all that stuff, right. And so when I can look at the world from that lens, of real humanity, nothing is anyone else's fault. Nothing is anyone else's fault. And my responsibility is for the things that I can change within me. And that's what has helped me. You know, my story is, you know, abuse, dysfunction, addiction, uh, a child with massive, massive brain injury, who died. Like, if you just look at that, it looks really awful. (laughs) Grade nine dropout, right? Literally, I was a grade nine dropout, started working in the bars, you know, Um, promiscuous through my teen years and my, because all I wanted was to be loved. So there's a lot of stuff there, but that's not who I am. It's, it's what, it's all little pieces of that that mosaic that I am. And there's also the piece of, you know, incredible joy and success and the things that I'm good at. So I think, you know, I, I might be kind of all over the place, but I think that real ability to look beyond the outside of people to who they are and their story, who, you know, their experience, who they are as people, really opens up a space for forgiveness and understanding because I think a lot of what holds us back um, people that have been traumatized is the blame Mm -hmm. is the wanting it to be someone's fault is the, well, you know, if you grew up in the house that I grew up in, you'd be an alcoholic too. If you grew up, you know, if your child died, you'd be bitter and angry too. You would never get out of bed. And, and I don't believe that. I believe that we at some point have a choice for accountability. You know, one of the things, the way that I live my life is 100% responsibility for everything in my life, good, bad, ugly, and different as an adult woman. Um, I can always see, usually if I'm harmed, where I've made a decision 
based on self. And when I say self, I mean lust, greed, envy, money, whatever it is. When I make decisions based coming from that place, it creates situations where I'm put in a place to be harmed. And so how can I blame anybody? When I take responsibility for my choices and say, yep, that happened, but where can I look at myself? Where can I make different decisions? Where can I make better choices taking this as a learning? So we can take our lives and all the things that have happened and look at it and go, hmm, okay, that's interesting, (laughs) right? Even now when stuff comes up, I'm like, oh, wow, this pain is interesting. Where is this coming from? What's causing this? And be the real observer in our own lives. And because that's who's watching as the spirit and say, you know, I had a situation last summer where at ceremony, a bunch of stuff came up and I actually was triggered and came from this place of this real emotional, huge emotional reaction to something that I, uh, the healthy woman in me would not have reacted in that way. And so I was able to, to watch that and go, wow, oh my God, what's happening here? Like this is, my reaction is not fitting the situation. And it's this beautiful opportunity to go, oh, where's that coming from? Oh, that's that little six-year-old Donna that's still desperate to be accepted. Because it was around not feeling accepted, not feeling worthy, feeling, you know, all this stuff. And so that little girl really had this huge reaction, whereas the woman in me can go, oh, oh, wow, that's really interesting. Where is that? And and heal that piece and say, oh, you still really want people to like you. Oh, you really still want to be accepted. People's opinions really mean a lot to you. Why? And when I can come from that place and look at it and go, oh, okay. Because that's so inherently we want to be accepted. We can say we don't, I don't care what you think, blah, blah, blah. But in my experience, it's mostly a lie. We can get above it. We can observe it and we can work on it. So it's not as important, but I think we all want that, you know, to be accepted, to be loved, to be okay. And well, because I, I think that we really know that that's where happiness lies, you know? So like, that's why we want to be accepted. So right. and peace. Yeah, like there's that that part of us that just understands, you know, like like primarily understands like my roots are tied to this happiness. That's where I'm gonna feel happy and I need to be accepted in my community, be able to and have my role in my community. Mm-hmm. Like like I need identity in this community, I need acceptance by this community because we always used to have that. Right. You know, but like as you talk, like like the richness in your words of understanding, like like it is so easy to see how much self-discovery that you've gone through. Like as you speak, you, you can clearly pick out how much self-discovery that you've gone through in your life to even offer the words that you offer when you open your mouth. Like it's amazing. It's incredible. Thank you. Yeah. Thank because you. You, you, you would never be able to describe it the way that you describe it. Because um, I know people, when they listen to this podcast, they're going to pick it out because everything that happens in my life that is perceived to be bad <laughs> yeah um, I'm always like hmm, that's interesting I'm like <laughs> why did that shit just happen you know but like as you're talking you say the same thing mm-hmm. but I also know that like self-discovery to me is like my utmost priority and not as in I got past the judgmental stage of self-discovery. Mm. Like I need to know who I am to be a better right. person. It's more, I've got to the point of curiosity. 
You know, I'm right. like, I'm like, like oh, I'm like, I really like, so I'm always like, hmm, I'm like that curiosity. It's like, well, I really didn't want that to happen, but I really didn't have a whole lot of control over it. This is interesting. <laughs> what can I gain from this? Like, like what, what's the, what's, why is life offering me this opportunity to like dig a little deeper and find a little bit something else? Because not that I need to change anything or there's, there's this flaw, but there's just something I need to understand that I'm just mm-hmm. not quite getting. And you're like, and what is that? You know, like that's really to me is like everything is out of like curiosity now. Absolutely. Like it just, and I can hear it from you too. Yeah. And there's a beauty in the pain. Like people don't want to hear that, but when I, you know, like again, I, through recovery, I walk with a lot of women and I say, fuck, lean in. lean in it's here for a reason it's teaching you something and it's not bad you know we don't want to feel anything other than good and okay and that's not real that's not authentic it's not life nobody where do we get the idea that life is fair life isn't fair for any other species whoa 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 you're getting a pretty hot topic there. <laughs> Don't forget, this is going out into the world. So you're just like, but you what know do you what mean? Like, like, yeah, it, animals know. and, I you know, know, their babies die. They get eaten as prey. Like humans, we have this idea that we're supposed to be happy all the time. It's not real. It's yeah. not life. And when we can lean in, there's a beautiful poem, a roomy poem, and it's called The Guest House. Mm-hmm. And it's about, you know, like, open your door wide to everything that comes. It may be a depression or a whatever. You never know what they're clearing you out for is to paraphrase it, but it's the most beautiful um, sort of analogy of that. Like open the door, let it in, feel it, lean in, lean into it all. They say, you know, pain is the touchstone of spiritual progress because it forces us to pause and go, Oh, what is this? And when we medicate it and when we, you know, drink it away and sex it away and spend it away, we learn nothing. Ain't that bad? And how can we ever lean into happiness and how can we never lean into good <laughs> if we won't lean into like discomfort and, you know, quote unquote bad, you know, like right. there's always like that give and take, like we need to learn how to be able to appreciate both sides because again, like, you know, you've brought it up. We all know like there's these huge pendulums swinging and have shifted in one way. They're starting to come back. And like that again is like appreciating that we are just humans. We have feelings. We are mm-hmm. going to do good one day, bad the <laughs> next day. We're going to do good four times today and eight times the next day. And like just all these different things, but like, we just, we need to le- lean into the human experience and just right. understand like leaning into it is identity. Leaning mm-hmm. into it is sovereignty. Leaning into it is peace. Beautiful. Right. That's exactly right. And part of what I'm doing, I've been doing it for a while, but I'm writing a bigger piece. Like I'd like to publish a bigger story of my life and and all the things I've learned a lot of what we've talked about today and and the real theme is spirituality for humans right because again we want to be so spiritual we forget that it's okay to be human there's such a beauty in being flawed there's such a beauty in the experience and the mistakes and the you know you were saying uh I've gone down this path or this road and I thought well the road has kind of pulled me down the path I haven't really pulled myself down the path I've come in skidding on my face right Mm -hmm. and and that's good 
it's a good thing. You know, all of it's good. All of it's worthwhile and valid and important. And when we can love each other, not in spite of our flaws, but because of them, it becomes a really beautiful space to be in. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll wrap things up there because that's a, a yeah. great way to be able to end it. But why don't you uh, shout out how to be able to get a hold of you if anybody wants to reach out for like your services or just to talk or you know you know maybe somebody who's like you know dealing with some issues mm -hmm. that they just value because um, yeah I just want everybody to be able to get in contact with any way that they can so like like uh, social media handles you know like email address phone numbers the whole bit yeah whole bit. okay so uh, you can email me at Donna dot reiki on at gmail.com you can call me at 604-809-1462 or probably a text is better <laughs> as we said I might, <laughs> yeah. I might not answer but I'll, if you text me i'll answer um and then on facebook i have a page called uh, night sky divine wellness which is what's the name of my company is going to be based on my spirit name actually which is night sky woman so uh, Night Sky Divine Wellness on Attack on Facebook. Um, yeah, hit me up. I would love to connect and see what opportunities there are out there for people to heal and connect and, and just create more conversation. I think it's amazing. And I just want to say thank you so much, Blake, for this opportunity, for this connection. I'll hit you up with a message um, to talk about doing some ceremony together. I think that would be amazing. Oh, I would, that would it. be such an honor. Such yeah, an honor. yeah. We'll definitely um, set that up. And uh, yeah, just thank you. Thank you. Well, it, it was on, and I know that people are going to find a lot of value in, in our conversation. Like I know that I haven't, I just, I, I love having conversations with people who are just willing to be vulnerable, you know, because again, like just to highlight, like we've only met through it, like email, we've only ever talked through email a couple of times. And it was really only just to set up this specific podcast. Like, so we had no previous relationship, but knowing that you can tell the quality of person that you are when you speak to the authority of being vulnerable, that that is really who you are because we have no um, like pre-existing relationship. <laughs> and you know, this is going out for the public to be able right. to hear. So you can tell that like what you say is actually who you are. And that is of the most value. I just is such an honor to have you on. And I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs>